Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 10, it's verses 1 through 21, which can be found on page 1666 in uh, your few Bibles. John 10, verses 1 through 21. Jesus speaking with the Pharisees before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for all that you've made, and we thank you for all that you've given to us, and we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. We pray that you would help us not to take it for granted or to take it lightly. God, we pray that you would help us to hear and to hear your voice. We pray that you'd help us to hear and to understand what you're saying. God, that we would come to know you better, and that we would come to love and trust you more in everything that we would walk with you as we are being changed by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, Is it not the saying of a man possessed by a demon? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Turn into our New Testament lesson. From Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, which will be found on page 1876 in the Bibles. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, 
to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more will I, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are currently in the season of Lent in the church year. Uh, This is the um, 40-day period leading up to Easter, and... um, it is a time of preparing ourselves for Easter, and so we are doing a sermon series throughout these 40 days of different times that 40 shows up in the Bible, different 40-day periods, 40-year periods, those sort of things. It shows up again and again, and what we saw uh, last week with that is it has to do with a time of testing, and uh, and we'll see more of that today as well, the, uh, the testing of another 40-day period. Before we get to that, though, I have to talk a little bit about hypocrisy. Has anybody here ever been bothered by uh, somebody who seems to be a hypocrite? Or has anybody ever heard anybody else be bothered by somebody who appears to be a hypocrite? Anybody? Yeah? You've heard that charge or you've felt that yourself? Um, for those who are wondering what that word even means, we're talking about somebody who um, says one thing but then acts a different way. And so um, they claim to be uh, <laughs> better, but actually they're just the same as everybody else. Well, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters, which again, I cannot recommend highly enough, um, there is a, a letter in which One demon is writing to another demon in this whole fictional world uh, of advice given from demon to demon of how best to keep people away from God, who, of course, they describe as the enemy. But anyway, and he says, uh, I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, and this is having to do, by the way, this is somebody that this demon is working on who has now started going to church, and they're like, well, how can we, with this person going to church, still keep him away from God? So, so if uh, the people in the next pew do provide rational ground for disappointment, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or if the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. 
All you then have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in, in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Now, I don't know if you caught all that. <laughs> what he's saying is that what needs to stay out of the, uh, the man's head and he's going to stay away from God is uh, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove, prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? In other words, we all ought to be able to look at ourselves and say, if I can consider that I'm a Christian, even though I know what's in me, <laughs> then we can't ever look down on anybody else. The problem is, a lot of times we don't know what we are because it's so easy to hide that. And it's so easy to justify our own behavior as no big deal. And then we look down on somebody else. Jesus tells a parable uh, at one point where it says to the, the Pharisees who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, he tells this parable. <laughs> and the whole point of the parable because we can't be looking down on anybody else. Today we're actually looking at uh, a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is preparing the people who have come out of slavery in Egypt, who have come uh, to Mount Sinai, who have gotten the law, who then have spent 40 years in the desert, and now we have a new generation getting ready to go into uh, this promised land. And as they are being prepared for this, it goes back over some of their history. So we hear... Um, how he describes some of their history and how he brings up uh, some events from the past and a 40-day period in particular. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them, and have heard it said, Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this. And never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until the day you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord has made, had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone, two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. 
At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord had told me, go down from here at once, because your people who you brought, whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. What a great pregame, pre-game speech, right? Here they are getting ready to go into uh, the promised land. And Moses is like, don't forget, you're a bunch of sinners. <laughs> like, wait, what, aren't you supposed to be like building us up at this point? And telling us how great we are and that's why we're going to beat the other team kind of thing? No. No. That is the way of the world. And this is a different way. And so what Moses does is he actually says, I want you to know who you are apart from God so that you will know that when you succeed with God, it is not because of you, it is because of him. And so he takes them back over a period of their history. Uh, it's kind of an unpleasant period. And this is actually something we find in Exodus uh, 20 to 32, that area. And um, one of the things about this particular section in their history that always kind of confused me before is that it seems like, you know, if this is when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, that uh, it says you shall not make any idols, right? That then when he comes down, they've made an idol. Like, yeah, but how did they know? How did they know they weren't supposed to do that? But that's because I was misreading it. So if that's what you've always thought... Let me show you a little differently. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, that's where it says, and God spoke all these words. And that's where we get the first uh, telling of the Ten Commandments. And these are spoken, the word of the Lord, to the people. And it's actually after this that uh, the people say in verse 19, um, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. But the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And it's at this point that then Moses goes up. Well, actually, it's a lot more uh, about how they are to live. And then Moses goes up on uh, the mountain. No, still not. Hold on, I'm skipping stuff. <laughs> There's uh, a very important section. I cannot skip this. The voice of the Lord has come to the people. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's given them more than just the Ten Commandments. And then, chapter 24, before Moses goes up for the 40 days, it says in chapter 24, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. So they've heard it. And they've already verbally committed to it. We're going to do this. Down at verse 7. So then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So again, 
And it's, it's not just they heard it once and, well, maybe you forget. They've heard it. They've heard it again. Uh, Moses read it to them, and now they have said multiple times, yes, yes, we are going to do that. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days. And what he actually receives on the mountain at that time, if you look over the next several chapters, what Moses is receiving on the mountain is the way in which God desires to be worshipped by his people. It's all about the tabernacle, it's all about the priests, and it's all about the Sabbath. So God is prescribing, this is how my people are to worship me. And at the same time this is happening, we have down below something else happening. At the same time, we have uh, the people at the foot of the mountain saying, I don't know where Moses went. I mean, you know, where he went. I don't know if he's coming back. I don't know what's taking him so long. And so they immediately go right back to what they knew before. They go right back to the same kind of idolatry that they had been exposed to in Egypt. The same kind that was surrounding them in the nations around. And so, uh, chapter 32, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed them, handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. What? (laughs) They make an image that God has said not to make. They put that in front of the people instead of God, and then they declare that this is the God that brought them out of Egypt. And then they even use the personal name of God and say, this is how we're going to have a festival to him. There's a reason why when Moses comes down the mountain, he throws the tablets and breaks them. They have broken the covenant. This is the same as tearing up the contract. <laughs> They've broken it already, and it didn't take very long. And here's where, again, we this hypocrisy thing at the beginning. Here's where it's really easy for us to fall into that subtle trap. It's really easy for us to look at them and be like, <laughs> Those idiots. <laughs> if I had been there, I would have done it. And that is the same problem they had. That is the same problem Peter had when he says, now if everybody else uh, abandons you, Jesus, I'm not going to. Even if I have to die with you, that's what I'll do. But he didn't. Because he didn't know his own heart. And the same is true with these people here. When they hear the, uh, the terms of this covenant and they say, yes, we're going to do that. But why do they think they were going to do that? Because they didn't know their own hearts. How fickle they were and how easy it is to turn away. How quickly that can happen. And so, long story short, this um, 40-day test, they failed. That's it. This is a 40-day test, time of testing. And they failed. And when confronted with this, how does Aaron respond? Does he tear his robes? And I have sinned? No. Now, this is Exodus 32, chapter, or chapter 32. Moses comes to him. What in the world? And uh, he says, Do not be angry, my lord, 
Aaron answered, You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. What are you going to do? Which, if you heard how it actually happened, said he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Doesn't sound like it just popped out as a calf, does it? I uh, saw something humorous on Facebook about this recently. Where a church in San Angelo, one of the pastors there, said he was going on uh, vacation and he had recently preached on this passage. And so he just told his elders before he left, just please don't make any golden calves while I'm gone. <laughs> and when he got back, he showed a picture of it. And it was uh, on his desk. There were a bunch of rubber duckies all circled around a golden rubber ducky up on a pedestal. And there was a little sign that accompanied it that said, we just threw it in the bathtub and this came out. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Anyway. Um, but this is, this is our tendency, not only to quickly go astray, but then when we do, when we try to downplay it. Like, well, I mean, it just happened. I don't, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> even though we have gone down that road. And so what happens is, and to put it in our own day, is we actually do chase after the idols of this world. We go after them on purpose. And then when confronted with it, we try to backpedal and say, well, no, that just sort of happened. I don't know. Now, another way that we say, no, that's not us, is it's too easy to distance ourselves from that kind of idolatry because we don't think we have anything in common with that. We're not fashioning golden calves. And so we think idolatry is not a problem for us. And in fact, a lot of times we try to understand why they would have a problem with it back then. How in the world could you make something with your hands and then claim that that's a god? It's one of the things the prophets kept pointing out. But in that day and time, uh, this, is, this is what everybody was doing. This was the culture of the nations that surrounded um, there's actually, Doug Stewart gives nine reasons why idolatry was attractive back then and why idolatry today is still attractive. I'm not going to go through all the reasons for each of these, but just listen to how he bullet points his. Uh, idolatry was guaranteed. So he knew what the arrangement was. Idolatry was selfish. You can get the gods to do what you wanted. Idolatry was easy. Idolatry was convenient. Bring your gods around with you wherever you want. Idolatry was normal. Everybody's doing it. Idolatry was logical. How in the world can you just have one god for all these different kinds of people? So, I have my god, you have your god, there you go. Idolatry was pleasing to the senses. Idolatry was indulgent. Idolatry was sensual. This is why people were attracted to idolatry then, and it's why people are attracted to idolatry today. No, we don't, we're not making golden calves or even uh, golden rubber duckies. But I did see a quote. It's attributed to Augustine. I don't, I couldn't track it down, so I, I think it's one of those internet things. But anyway, <laughs> the saying is still good. It says, idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshipped. Let's say that again. 
idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshipped. So when we are using God and worshiping created things, we have a problem. And here are some uh, examples of modern-day idolatry. John Calvin says that the, the human heart is an idol-making factory, that we're constantly making new idols all the time. So here are some that don't look as much like golden calves, but maybe more recognizable in our day and age. Um, some examples that Martin Luther King gave, that Sky Jatani has given, that Tim Keller has given. I just pulled some of these together. Science, idolatry of science, nationalism, money, comfort, mission, celebrity, desire, family, knowledge, nation, work, codependence, beauty and image, Family, again. Money, again. Control. Any of these recognizable in our day and age? Now, as you heard those lists, I hope there's a part of you going, whoa, 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 that's not a bad thing about some of those, right? Some of those things are not bad things, but as we discussed last week with the rain of the flood with Noah, Rain is a good thing, but too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And that's what we see with idolatry. It's when we take things that God has given to us as good things and we raise them above God. The gold that they used for that calf was gold that God made. That is part of his good creation. But when they take this gift that he has given to them and they turn that into their ultimate, when they turn that into what it is they're going to worship, that's when everything breaks down. And so it's the turning of a good thing into an ultimate thing that we have a problem. And so, uh, as I said earlier, this time of testing that the Israelites faced back then, they failed. We started with Deuteronomy, with Moses at the edge of the promised land, reminding people, this is who you are. We are people who fail. We are people who, when given an opportunity to turn away from God, do it and do it quickly and do it spectacularly. <laughs> it's an odd message, but it's an important one. And it's an important one for us today as well, and that is why we are spending these 40 days leading up to Easter testing our own hearts. Rooting out our own idols. Seeing if there are things that God has given us that are good things that we have made ultimate things. That we have put above him. That we have put before him. Um, I think there's a reason that Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think it's because he knows us better than we know ourselves. I think we are too quick to be like the Israelites. We're too quick to be like Peter. We're too quick to say, not me. I would be fine. I can handle it. And he says, no, you can't. And it's okay for you to know that about yourself. In fact, it's important for you to know that about yourself. But no, you can't handle it. But I can 
So we pray, lead us not into temptation, or we will fail. But deliver us from evil. In other words, bring us again to the Good Shepherd. That we would stay close with him as we walk through everything. As Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the rod and the staff that both fend off the attacks and also bring us back as we start to wander. (laughs) You are with me. And that's the key. This is what uh, the people needed. And uh, so I go a little further. There's another 40-day period in uh, Deuteronomy that Moses mentions. And this is right after he goes up that 40 days and he comes back down, they've created the calf, and then he goes back up again. And God has said, I'm just going to destroy all the people. And Moses says, oh, let's not do it that way. And so he goes up on the mountain again for 40 more days. And he prays to God to not destroy the people. And at the end of the 40 days, uh, this is chapter 10, verse 10. Moses says, Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. And so in this uh, same section, what we have is both the people deserve to be destroyed because they are so quick to turn away. We hear of their weakness and their faithlessness, but we also hear of God's faithfulness. And at the second 40-day period, the people in the first 40-day period failed the test, but the second 40-day period, God shows himself as the one who passes the test. And this is why, again, when we come to um, what we read in Hebrews, it says we've not come to the mountain like Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion, um, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we read in John 10 of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's okay to recognize our weakness as long as we are looking to his strength. If we depend on our own strength, we will find our weakness and it will be crushing. If we depend on his strength, we will see our weakness and we can still trust him and walk in that. But when we forget our own weaknesses, that's when we end up in a place like we were looking at at the very beginning today. Of the hypocrisy really bugging us about people. When we look at them and we say, how can that person say they're a Christian and yet they act like that? How can they say they're a Christian and yet they do that? And it's true. It is true that as Christians we should be growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. But that happens at a different rate for every person. And he starts in a different place with each of us in a different area of our lives. And so rather than looking at them and saying, I can't believe they would call themselves a Christian and still be doing that. (laughs) So we have to look at ourselves and say the exact question that the demon wants to keep away from us, which is, if I can consider myself in some way a Christian, 
knowing what I am, why could they not also be Christian? And so it's in knowing our weakness and also um, the forgiveness and the perfection of Jesus that we are able to walk this road ourselves but also extend grace to others. Now, this message uh, that Moses gives the people at, um, at the edge of the promised land, he repeated three times. Know that you're not going in here. You're not taking us over because of your own righteousness. And so the same is for us. That as we can in some way consider ourselves Christian, we can't ever say it's because of my righteousness. That God has chosen me because I'm better than other people. <laughs> but it's only because of his mercy that we have any right to call ourselves Christians. It's only because of his forgiveness that we have any way right to call ourselves children of God. And so, know your sin. Know your sinful nature. Know your weakness. But know that your Savior is greater so that you are not crushed by despair. But instead, rejoice in His amazing grace. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.